Hey everybody, welcome to the Sacramental Charismatic, the podcast exploring the intersection of uh, sacramentality, missiology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, and then basically whatever else decides to get talked about. Uh, my name is Luke Garrity, and I'm the host, and I'm really excited about today's conversation uh, with Susan Van Riesen, who is the lead pastor of the Palo Alto Vineyard. So Bay Area, Susan, it is so great to finally have a chance to sit down and do a podcast with you. Thanks, Luke. Welcome. So how are you doing? Good. Yeah. Good. You're hanging in there. I am. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, it's kind of funny when you think about that answer, how you generally it seems like people say, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, hey, for our list, you know, so I know uh, there's people in the vineyard movement that are familiar with you um, and, um, you know, but people outside of the vineyard or maybe perhaps, you know, who are in the vineyard, but maybe live on the East Coast or the Midwest who maybe haven't had a chance to interact with you. You know, maybe what are what are a couple of things that are important to know about you that would help people kind of maybe situate you and uh, and, you know, your your background and whatnot. We'd love to hear a little bit about that. Before I came on staff at the Vineyard, I was a staff member with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for 16 years in Southern California and here in Northern California. And I was a full-time mom for eight years. And then I've been on staff at our church in various roles, but lead pastor for three years. Awesome. Cool, cool. That's um, awesome. I've actually um, had the chance to go down to your church building in uh, in the Palo Alto area, and, and we got to eat uh, Indian food, which I, as That's I told right. you in our emails, like I constantly think about that. I'm always like, I wish we lived <laughs> in Palo Alto. That Indian food was amazing. Um, so yeah, you so you worked in college ministry uh, in a in a quote unquote parachurch ministry for quite some time, and mm-hmm. um, you know I think that probably gives you somewhat of a unique perspective from a uh, ministry ministry side of things because you were in a uh, in a um, yeah college college university setting, so mm-hmm. you probably saw a pretty big shift culturally over the course of that of that time. Uh, would that be or was it already kind of leaning towards post modernity and you know maybe less Christian as culture? Yeah, I mean the college I went to for undergrad myself was a very postmodern place. Mm-hmm. anyways, and Occidental College in Southern California. So okay. I think by the time I got into ministry, it was definitely a postmodern scene. <laughs> yeah. And, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I like that. I've always um, found talking to people who worked in the college campuses um, to be like 10 years ahead of the game, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like teach me your ways. What are you dealing with? You know, cause yeah. we're going to have that happen here. Uh, that's yeah. great. Well, um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about your experience as a as a woman in leadership. Um, I think also, uh, you know, being a woman of color, um, you know what that's what that's been like, and you know, um, just what's what's your experience been? Because I know we both um, have come to a biblical, theological, and pastoral uh, position of being egalitarians and and seeing mm-hmm. that women are invited to serve in any area of leadership. Um, but there's still the consequences of the cultural, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 
the Lou that's been been out there. And even in the movement that we're a part of, um, I know that we have um, egalitarian uh, egalitarian framework or it's allowed mm-hmm. you know, and it's mm-hmm. encouraged in many ways. But there's also been um, times where it doesn't feel like, you know, we're as as maybe progressive or we haven't enacted that as much as as we would want to see, um, you know, or at least that's my experience. I'd, I'd love to hear like, what, what's your, been your experience and how did, how did, um, you know, how has being a woman uh, in leadership in a lead pastor role, uh, what's that been like, you know, both the positive and maybe, you know, also the parts that you want to poke somebody's eyes out. I know you would <laughs> never want to poke anybody's eyes out because you're nice, but I would, I would. You know, overall, it's been really good. It's been surprisingly uh, encouraging and supportive. When um, I transitioned from being a co-lead pastor with my husband to being the sole lead pastor, I really don't think we lost anyone in our church. Mm, And there are some, even some people who either are, what do they call it? Mildly complimentarian, but soft. soft Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) But they still, we're like, Susan, we trust you, and we believe that the Holy Spirit is on you for leadership. In mm. So how they pulled that together, I'm not sure, but um, mm. I just really felt the support of my church. Yeah. So, And I really felt like God did a number of things in that first year, especially, to confirm that he was going to really help me. And mm. it didn't have to be this way, but I felt like God was saying, I'm going to make this good and smooth. For you, and I felt like that happened. Gotcha. Did you? So did you? Did you grow up? uh, Did you grow up in church, so to speak? And if so, did you grow up, you know, holding to an egalitarian perspective, or did you kind of transition into that later in life? I grew up in a Korean Presbyterian church in Eugene, Oregon. Really small, probably more like a PCA church. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So women could be elders and deacons, but not, they couldn't preach or be a pastor. Yeah. They couldn't be elders or. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So that was the, that was the environment you grew up in. And Mm -hmm. then what, what, I guess, what kind of caused that shift that, that, you know, that story to change a little bit in your own personal um, framework, so to speak, or your own personal like convictions? I don't think that the gender dynamics of my small conservative Korean church background were really convictions of my own. Okay. <laughs> so gotcha. it didn't, it's just what I grew up with and what got modeled to me, but I don't think I mm. internalized those things. Yeah. And I didn't really uh, live out my faith until college anyway, very much. Mm-hmm. So um, in college, I connected with university Christian fellowship, mm. which is definitely very egalitarian. Yeah. So as are most campus ministries or many. Mm. So yeah, even the ones really... for even the ones for dork denominations that are complementarian, if you go to there, mm-hmm. that's always the interesting feeling. Like, huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, They're not yeah. pastors, so yeah, it's okay. exactly, exactly. It's like, oh, we're just playing semantics now because uh, you do all the pastor things, but yeah. So so that background um was not something you embodied or really found as a conviction. It just was the, what you were in. Yeah. Um, and, and so w- did you already 
had you, like, I guess, how did you wrestle with that? Or has that, maybe it hasn't been a wrestle. Maybe it's been something that, you know, but how, you, how did you come to the point where you were, um, I guess, not only, because I, I think something I really appreciate about you, Susan, is that you're not just a egalitarian, like, hey, I believe that women can, but you seem to be a very, uh, you're an advocate. Um, mm-hmm. When you, like, when I, whenever, every time you write anything, I've ever seen anything you write or interact on social media, um, I just really think that you measure your words in a way that is thoughtful. And then also, mm-hmm. it seems to be like wanting to stimulate people moving in a very kingdom, um, kingdom oriented uh Tra- trajectory. So like, did that develop at all? Or was that just kind of who you are? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm guessing that in my time in university as a student and, and at Occidental College, there was a lot of um, values for justice and advocacy and um voice and speaking up for marginalized people mm. but i and i think that my experience as a korean american was probably more a part of that than my experience as a woman okay. um, although that's definitely in there as well mm. but i don't i mean i i think when i came back into church ministry there was a sense of like oh Oh yeah, this issue is this going to be a problem? And um, it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't yeah. a huge problem. So when my husband became the lead pastor, our family situation was that, um, you know, I had a, a one special needs child and then two kids who were year one year minus three days apart. So mm. at that point, I was like, you know what? I don't really care <laughs> whether um, our church will allow for a. a woman in the lead pastor role because I'm not interested in it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and when our lead, our founding pastor left, the board at that time decided that they would not take applications from women. So, um, yeah, that was just, uh, I guess that was annoying and interesting to me, but I was like, (laughs) okay, whatever. Um, So my husband did apply and um, he got the position, but as he entered into the role, he told our board that his vision and our vision, ultimately when we were ready, that we would ultimately like to lead together. That would mm-hmm. was our vision for us as a, as a family and as a couple. And so we just kind of lived in the tension of that and felt like, mm-hmm. well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And then eventually, as our family situation stabilized, we did uh, take the role together as co-lead pastors. And that by that time was fine with everyone Mm -hmm. um, in leadership. And then when it was time for my husband to take on the role of the more time parent, that was fine with everyone, too. So Mm -hmm. everyone, you know, on our board and in the leadership of our church. So I feel like that God has really rolled that carpet out in a, a good way. Mm-hmm. So how long, how long ago, if you don't mind me asking, how long ago was it that the church would, would, would say, Hey, we aren't going to take uh, applications from female. Was that 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Maybe 12, 13 years ago okay. when the former lead pastor was leaving. Okay. Yeah. And I think he felt that way. And a number of other, Board members felt that way, yeah. but then and, there was and a the national vineyard, transition. 
and the vineyard at that time was still kind of coming to terms with that um, around that time. You know, I think that was a little bit after that, perhaps when the Vineyard USA. No, it was before then. It was okay because it was, it was yeah. it 2006, maybe 2000. I can't remember. Four, three, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. I just remember when they had the letter come out, and it was like mm-hmm. we've de- we've decided, but you don't have to go by it. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so I was like, like, okay. Yeah, I was like, I don't understand. Uh, yeah. So we aren't, or we are, but. Uh, well, that's interesting. I, I think that that's probably pretty common for a lot of a lot of soft complementarians, at least. Um, you know, because that's kind of my story. I I was um, so it's funny you you were in a PCA. I, I went to a Presbyterian seminary. Um, mm-hmm. I have I have a lot of Reformed um, tradition, uh, you know, influences in some ways. So, I, but I would have defined myself. I don't know a soft complementarian for a long time. I didn't really have a problem with women preaching or. And I was really wrestling with two texts of scripture, the two texts that everybody wrestles with. And I just had not, um, I hadn't encountered a whole lot of really solid biblical um, scholarship at the time. That was was my kind of experience. I just read like, like books would be given to me from an egalitarian perspective. And they were, they were very, um, they were very practical and they really highlighted the challenges from a, from a, um, an individual perspective, but they just did not really convince me biblically or theologically. So it wasn't until a few years later where I started wrestling with some really good scholarship where I was like, okay, I'm, uh, there's really good reasons to have an egalitarian perspective on gender issues and leadership. Um, but I also want to say that what was a really convincing thing for me was seeing it modeled too. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I woke up one day and I realized that I've got five sisters. My mom has been an amazing uh, spiritual leader in my life. Um, I have five sisters. Uh, I also, incidentally, have three daughters and my wife. And and our churches have always had lots of female leaders who were very gifted, very capable. And so when I started seeing it modeled more, it was like it, it just it, like all those pieces fell together. So I think that's an interesting an interesting thing for like in your church community. It, it, you know, it starts out, yeah, no. And then it's like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe. And then it's like, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of a, I, I don't know. It's a kind of a gracious way of doing it too, I think, because it gives people, that's the challenge, like giving people the space to process through some of these really challenging topics, you know, like mm-hmm. if you were, if you're a diehard complementarian and you've been told your whole life that be a comp, being a complementarian is a progressive, non-valuing the Bible perspective. I mean, it's no wonder that people are a little suspicious of, other perspectives, but if you allow them to ask questions and and uh, and process it, there can be positive fruit. Not not always, but it seems like that's kind of cool to see that process though modeled out too. And that's something that um, I have not, I hadn't valued that as much before. I think because I had this like rigid, it has to be the Bible. You know, just show me the Bible verses and help me exegete them correctly. Um, mm-hmm. But I underestimated. I think that model and that's something i think that's really fascinating about about women in ministry too uh, and i'd love to have you comment on this is like my, i always tell people my wife she she like she's not a real fan of speaking like she doesn't really like we don you met don she's not mm-hmm. a fan mm-hmm. of it like she's like i would not choose that to be the thing i do but mm-hmm. she has a lot of and i i would use the word authority um mm-hmm. another word might be influence um, when she speaks, because she brings something completely different to the table than I do. And so when she's sharing and she's speaking, um, it's, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it has a different, well, it's, it's the, it's the other side. We have to have those different perspectives. And so like, have you found that to be true too, that, um, you know, in your own experience, 
people like they heard your sermons and they started seeing how, oh, you're leading differently than past pastors have. And you do it in, in a uh, in a more I, I don't know, it's like it, it convinces them. Has that been a big part of the story, too, where they that you said earlier, they saw in a sense like evidence of God's work in your life or there were there was positive things in the ministry and that was what kind of sold them. <laughs> I don't know, know if that's the best way to put it, but you know what no, I mean. No, no. Um, what I'm realizing is that even though I came from a complementarian, a functionally complementarian background mm-hmm. in terms of the Korean church, I think I mostly thought about that as Korean culture because it's oh, just more patriarchal. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I didn't really think of it, at, and, and I wasn't a seminarian at the time. I was just a kid, mm-hmm. but... I thought of it as just, yeah, that's how Korean culture is. You know, it's just gotcha. more gender segregated and the men have the leadership roles, but mm-hmm. we didn't really, no one was having the conversation like, what does the Bible say about that? You know, it was just mm-hmm. kind of taken for granted. And yeah, I oh, think it was more in the culture bucket for me. Hmm. So I don't think I ever struggled with like, wow, is this, is this okay? And a new world or something like that. You know, (laughs) I just um, went to a college where there's half the professors are women, you know, and of course half the staff workers are women. And then just, you know, it was just natural. Yeah. So Hmm. yeah, it was almost like when uh, we had the meeting where our former lead pastor said, announced that um, they would only be taking applications from men for the lead Mm -hmm. pastor role. We were like, Oh, that's, huh, whatever. That's weird. (laughs) You know, are they Korean? Are they Korean? (laughs) 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 Exactly. (laughs) You're Korean. Um, (laughs) You look white to me, but yeah, it's funny. I mean, I I definitely think I have encountered more uh, complementary church culture cultures along the way since then, mm-hmm. since I've been immersed in more church ministry rather than, than campus ministry. But it just, the complementarian thing makes so little sense in college ministry. You know, when you're like, my professors are women, you know, mm-hmm. uh, administrators are women. And wait, what? Like women can't lead Bible study? Okay. <laughs> you know, that's just yeah. weird. So. Yeah. Well, it's like you said, the, the word functional, you, I think that's a good word to use when you talk about this a little bit, because that's what I found so fascinating. When I was when I was transitioning from this soft complementarianism to to, you know, egalitarian, the egalitarian perspective, which for our listeners, I should just say, like, you know, the common egalitarian perspective is that um, leadership's not based off of gender, but it's based off of calling and gifting um, so it's not that every man shouldn't be a leader or every woman should be a leader. It's about gifting. And so the primary question is like, hey, are you called and has God gifted you? Uh, and do you have the character? Do you have, you know, the questions are not mm-hmm. what is your gender, <laughs> you know, when you come mm-hmm. to this. Uh, but when I when I was coming to that, what I found really fascinating is as I was processing this, because we were in pastoral ministry in, in the last church, uh, I was the senior pastor, lead pastor, mm-hmm. and my wife was pastor's wife or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, and yet my, my wife is way more pastoral than I am, but by Mm. leaps and bounds. And so people would say, oh no, we totally think that she does pastoral ministry and she's definitely gifted uh, with pastoral gifting, but she can't Mm -hmm. be the senior pastor. And I I remember I was like, that does not make sense to me. Like at all. Like there's not a, like, can Mm -hmm. you say that one more time for yourself to understand how inconsistent that, that perspective is? Um, 
you know, so yeah, that's, so that's fascinating though. Like, like how your, your college experience and maybe just be in wrestling with the cultures, you just kind of assumed that was a, a Korean uh, cultural thing. And, <laughs> and then you didn't really discover that it was an actual issue maybe until later when you started interacting with more church people, you're like, Oh yeah. I think, I funny. mean, theoretically I knew that it was a conversation, but it wasn't a conversation yeah. that I was like super engaged with. And we yeah. did some teaching about this in college ministry because students were coming from all sorts of different kinds of church backgrounds, you know? So I yeah. wrestled with it more mm-hmm. um, over the shoulder or like secondarily. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think as a campus minister, I didn't always love being on the forefront of that conversation because it felt like self-advocacy, you know? And uh-huh. so if they were students who were like, prove to me that it's okay, then I'd be like, could we have a brother do this? A brother who is also yeah. egalitarian yeah. because it's just weird to advocate okay. for your, you know? We, we got to talk more about this. This this is okay. this- I, I I need uh, I, I think this is a good topic because uh, the concept of allies in any mm-hmm. I mean you know we're, we've seen that with uh, especially with um, ethnic diverse conversations conversations racism systemic mm-hmm. oppressions all all the things that have been raised uh, actually raised to the perspective of a, a, a group of people in America who have been kind of oblivious to it because <laughs> a lot of other mm-hmm. people have been like hey this is real it's been real for a long time. Um, but, but you hear more, more talking about allies. And like, I, I remember I was having a conversation with somebody who was basically like grilling an African-American friend of mine for like, basically, you know, give me evidence that these things. And I'm like, I was like, Hey dude, I don't think that this Mm African-American person should have to tell you about racism, um, and educate you because they've been doing that their whole lives. And maybe you could do a Google search and read some (laughs) books or, you know, that seems really mean. Uh But but on the other hand, I also am like, there are some people who I and I know that there's maybe this is just different gifting and different uh, perspectives. But there are there are people who feel like it's part of their calling to help educate people about their ethnic um, mm-hmm. you know, issues or, you know, so they don't have a problem with saying, hey, I'd love to help you as a white person become more aware of the challenges that I have faced or that people of color face. So it's like both of those perspectives to me are valid, you know, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, so a lot of times it's like us just self-differentiating where I don't want to do that <laughs> or, yeah. mm-hmm. or I would like to do that, you know, but with the, the issue of allies, um, like talk a little bit more about that because um, I tend to agree with you um, that, that especially men should be speaking up about some of these issues because I think it is, um, important to be an ally. But on the other hand, the two things that I, I'm kind of wondering is, uh, number one, um, it's like, again, is it, it kind of models patriarchy, though? It's like the man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm yeah. Like, it's ironic to me that I'm like, hold on, let me mansplain. <laughs> right, right, right. Let me explain to you why it's okay for Susan. Yeah. To, yeah, um, that's so that's true. number one. And uh-huh. then number two, um, <laughs> With the ally uh, issue or challenge, is it, it seems like um, there's an attitude amongst some people where it's it's almost an anti-intellectual thing. And I remember I've, I've encountered this a lot. I, I was trying to seriously wrestle with with the data, and I remember multiple people almost just saying like, you know, we don't, you know, we don't theologies, you know, you can't never know, and the Bible's not that. It was like this real anti-intellectual 
perspective. I don't think they meant to do that, but like, I don't really care about all the theology. I just know in my heart. Mm-hmm. That, right. Right. It, yeah. I'm not, I'm not throwing shade, but it's it, for mm-hmm. me, I was like, uh, that doesn't do anything. Like I need yeah. someone to speak up and, you know, and so I've participated in different um, events uh, on the subject of women in ministry. And there's always like, two or three women that hold a perspective like that, where they don't want to really talk about the scholarship. And I don't know if it's because of their insecurity of maybe they don't know it. And that's totally fine, you know, but like, let's not throw shade on or like demean or minimize the importance of, you know, being your own ally uh, would be my, you know, would be my thought. So like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I tend to agree with you. Like maybe you shouldn't have had to you know, get up there and tell InterVarsity, like, this is why I'm in leadership. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, too, do you feel like it's important for you to be able to do that? Or did you ever have yes. to do that? And did you see fruit of that? I, comment on all that. I know that's a lot, but I just want to <laughs> flesh out I allies. A, I have a funny story. So I think sometime in the first year that I was the lead pastor at our church, a friend of a friend contacted me and his church, which had been complementarian since the time it started, um, had just lost their... Uh, lead pastor, and they were in the middle of a church uh, of a pastor search. And um, someone raised the issue like, hey, we've only ever had male pastors, but are we open to having women apply for this position? And um, they were like, oh, not really. And th- they were kind of wrestling with, well, why not? Do- is this something that we really own? And so they decided to put that on the table. And um, it was an all-male elders team. So I guess in order to be a pastor, you had to be on the elders team. And the elders team was all men. Um, so anyways, they they wanted to come to a new conclusion. And they really wanted to look at the scriptures again. So they mm-hmm. decided, we want to find a church that um, we identify with. You know, uh, mm. they were... Uh, non-denominational evangelical. And so they decided to find an evangelical pastor who is a man who's complementarian and an evangelical pastor who's a woman who's egalitarian. Mm -hmm. And so they reached out to me and I had only been in the role for a year. And they said, so we would like you to come and lead our elders teen in a Bible study. And we're going to have the other guy come and do that too. And would you do this? And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, that just sounds like, do I want to stick my head in a blender? Yeah, I don't think so. You know, just like, I'm so busy. I have so many things to do. Why, why would I do this? There's and Indian so, food right down the road. Why would you not just go eat Indian food every day? That's what I would do for you. So, yeah. I, got so um, I said, oh, well, I'm just going to send Alex. You know, he's had these, and my husband, he's had a bunch of these conversations, <laughs> you know, but they didn't really want Alex. They wanted me to come. Yeah. And Alex said to me, yeah, you're kind of like a unicorn, you know? Oh, and this church was an Asian American church. So I'm an Asian American woman lead pastor, you know, in in a local church. And he said, yeah, you're like a unicorn. They want to see if you really exist in the Asian American woman lead pastor. So, um, so Alex said, I think you should just pray about it. So I prayed about it and, you know, I was just going to do the perfunctory prayer but then I felt the Lord saying, you know, what if I have a little girl in that church who mm-hmm. I've gifted to mm-hmm. be a leader or pastor, and it would really help them to have a role model. And why don't you just go and do this? 
So I was like, uh, okay, fine. So I went and I was nervous to meet with the elders, you know, all the male elders. And um, I actually took Alex with me, not to be my covering, but just to be my partner. Report. And he was like, oh yeah, I'm so excited. And, yeah. you know, he's just great at connecting. And he, um, yeah, he just became everyone's best friend. And, you know, he said, I, they asked him, of course, how is it for you to have, to be the spouse of, a woman who's lead pastor. And he's like, I love it. I yeah. love that my wife is happily using her gifts for the kingdom. I think this is awesome. And this is even better for us than when I was lead pastor. And, you know, he was just super enthusiastic. And I did do the theological conversation, the scripture study. They actually had me come and lead the whole congregation in a Bible study as well. And the other pastor had come and the week before and, um, mm. The elders team voted unanimously that they would change to be egalitarian. Wow. And the congregation, the majority of the congregation voted to switch to be egalitarian as well. Wow. And now yeah. they yeah. have yeah. a co-lead pastor team of a man and a woman who are not married to each other. Mm. And um, and the the woman who's on that team is a friend, acquaintance of mine. And I'm just so thrilled that they've made this change. And it sounds like it's been really great for that church, but wow. it was good for me to go mm -hmm. and have the conversations and mm, either out of avoidance or laziness to, you know, to not just avoid it or just be like, Oh, that's an unpleasant self-advocating <laughs> conversation that I don't want to have. Also my husband, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be like, no, I, I can be a part of this. Yeah. So uh, in that case, it's, it's not that you can't, uh, advocate for yourself or be your own ally or argue for, you know, the perspective convincingly, I might add, because it, it you, you worked, <laughs> it worked. Hold uh, on, but, I'm sorry. My oh, yeah. AirPods are not working. So I'm going to have to. That's totally okay. Take your time, do whatever you got to do. This is like those podcasts where um, I had said when I first started that there might be kids running around at times. It's totally okay. So. I can't hear you, but you can hear me, maybe. <laughs> What's that? Good. I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. I'm back. Good. Okay, cool. Yeah, we can uh, we can edit uh, if we need to, but I probably won't just because this is what makes it fun. Uh, so so anyway, I was I was saying how um, you know you 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 have. Um, been able to convincingly argue for your perspective and i don't mean argue in a you know pejorative way but you know make a case for it and to convince a congregation group of elders pastors um but what's the awkwardness of i guess maybe flesh out like give me your like if in a perfect world where you had allies and advocates functioning well and you and we you also had people um, with the freedom of not having to advocate for themselves if it was going to bring emotional trauma or whatever other, you know, negative things which exist. I mean, I, I know that, you know, it's like, do I really have to make this argument again? I'm sick and tired of it. What is, how, what does that look like? I mean, how do we, how do we get to that point where, you know, like the Twitter, Twitter rage happens so quickly where people can jump onto, you know, being angry about some of these things so quickly without maybe allowing space for this tension, you know, where you have allies and advocates, but you also um, have people who are also able to help process people through different scenarios. I mean, do you see, do you think that there's any 
uh, ways to do that well, I guess, maybe in a local church. Let's let's put it in that context. How can we do that in a local church context? And think about that for any any topic, you know, women in ministry, um, social justice, politics, uh, which is a huge challenge for the church now. Um, but even, you know, um, the way that you're you're going to do kids ministry or, you know, I, I don't know. There's a whole there's probably millions of different scenarios that where you have advocates and allies and then you have people that um, can also make their own cases. Like, how do you see a really healthy way for those those two issues to kind of intersect and interact with each other? I think it's best done in relationship and in community. You know, so that's what I don't like about social media is that it <laughs> can just be like saying stuff and it's not really based on much relationship. Yeah. But I think the more relationship you have, uh, the more you can actually be heard. So mm. if you care about changing people's hearts, then you'll invest in the relationship mm. or build the trust. However that looks yeah. um, speaking up for the sake of speaking up in my opinion has marginal value mm. up in love with trust, with giving, giving the benefit of the doubt, then you're more likely to win people over. Hmm. That's that's genius. That's that's really good. So speaking up just for the sake of speaking up is very, not very fruitful. It's it's, it's just it's blow people off. Yeah, you know, and just say, oh, you're yeah. camp or whatever. Yeah, I think you're right about. It. It's funny how you know people get behind one of these keyboards here. Yeah, and get real brave, real brave. Yeah. In fact, this is this is totally probably to my shame, but I love those videos on YouTube where it's like a dude shows up at somebody's house and they're all like g'd up and gangster and they're like you were talking smack you know like the guy's like i was just kidding it's like i think they're i think they're funny comedy videos they're not uh -huh. real, you know real but i'm just like cracking up because guys like yeah you want to fight let's do this and then the other guy's like you know he's he's hiding behind his keyboard yeah i'm like oh, i know how that goes uh wow that's that's really helpful though i i I, I think that um, that seems to be so often the answer is relationship and communication like you said it's it's kind of funny because that's not like that's just really kingdom. <laughs> that's yeah. really that's really the way Jesus modeled things, you know. And and I think we see the fruit of that, um, you know. But it's uh, yeah, social media has made it really challenging, and um, you know the disconnectedness. And now with you know COVID nineteen, the the pandemic, you know the the um, disembodiment of many of our relationships has been challenging, right? Like you know, in your context, you're still quote unquote, doing church virtually and online because of the the um, need to do that. And, you know, in other communities, they've like we've we've been in person for a while. We still have a lot of protocols, but it's just it's awkward still, too, because it, even though we're kind of in person, there's still there still is that barrier because of masking. And, you know, um, it's just yeah, it's 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 weird. Um, but it's also kind of interesting because it raises all these embodiment questions of what does it look like to be community and to have relationships? Because my ecclesiology is definitely not um, to the point where I would say that you have to meet in person, you know, to be a real church or, you know, like you have to be able to do the, you know, kiss each other on the cheek like Paul commanded. <laughs> uh, OK, so you talked about being a an Asian American, a, a Korean, um, and I want to talk about Asian culture a little bit. Um, okay. I have, I have a, like, I think I told you, you know, I'm 25% Japanese. I, I 
have increasingly felt like, especially since uh, since the quote unquote, and I and I'm not at all saying this in the, but the you know the use of the phrase China virus has been extremely hurtful, very damaging to um, Asian Americans. I have many friends who have shared stories and. And it's really interesting because, you know, um, I will cry if I talk about this whole lot, but my grandma was, um, you know, probably one of the most important people in my life. And so to think that people would be, you know, hateful to her based off of her being Japanese is like, you know, beyond. I mean, I just it, it, it's not it's I, I'm not I'm not mad anymore. I'm just hurt. It's like hurtful. It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe we still live in a world where that's like a thing. Yeah, uh, but we but we do. Like, that's the thing. It's like, even though it's uncomfortable to talk about and it's hurtful, it's the reality that we live in and it's something we have to process through. So, um, so I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, you know, being an Asian American in America has its, has its challenges because oftentimes when it comes to ethnic diversity conversations, mm -hmm. from my perspective, it seems like we talk a lot about black and white and we also will talk about um, you know, the Hispanic, um, Latino cultures and peoples and white, but Asian Americans are like, oftentimes it, it feels very much like they're left out. Um, 25% of me feels very left out. Okay? Uh, and, and so I, I guess, you know, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, what's it, what's it been like, you know, cause in the Bay area, there's actually a large Asian American community, uh, well, different parts of the Bay area down where you live. And um, I had the pleasure of going to this really beautiful church down in Berkeley. I think it was like maybe two years ago. And it was a Baptist um, Asian church that does campus ministries. And I was blown away. And it was this thriving mm -hmm. church environment, very missional. I mean, they were so like, I was blown away. It was phenomenal. Um, but what's that been like, you know, as an, as an Asian American? And do you see it that way? Do you see that there's like this um un, i don't know if it's unwillingness but it just hasn't happened there hasn't been a lot of conversations at the forefront of society and culture about asian americans and their their challenges they have uh living in in our country like do you see it that way and like flesh that out give me your thoughts because i know you probably have a lot being that you're asian <laughs> and assume that you do yeah i i definitely think that even within our vineyard movement it can feel very black and white. And I understand why many people's entry into the whole racial reconciliation, uh, multi-ethnic kingdom of God conversation or conviction, it can first be a black white experience, depending on where you live, you know, um, in the South, in the Midwest. I mean, in certain places, it is very black white. That's who's there. Um, and I think we're lucky in the Bay Area that it's automatically not black, white because, well, actually we don't have very many African-Americans mm -hmm. where I live, but um, it's just very multi-ethnic. You know, we have mm -hmm. South Asians, we have Southeast Asians and, um, and you're able to differentiate like, wow, these are really different cultures. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I always, I feel aware of that. Like, Hey, are Asians part of the conversation? You know, is there a sense of like, oh, the issues aren't as intense with Asians, so we'll get to that later. Or is there a willingness to see, wait, how are our Asian brothers and sisters yeah. as well? Um, because it can be a little bit more invisible or not talked mm -hmm. about, but it's there. And I know it's there because I grew up in a very um, 
white context where I was very, very aware of being an outsider, mm. which I might not if I had grown up here in the Bay Area. Yeah. But outside of the, I mean, outside of the Bay, I think that's why that's something that we we do need to talk about, uh, not just in the vineyard, but I think in most church contexts, you know, because, um, yeah, it's one thing to go to the Bay. Like I go to the Bay and I'm like, wow, I am literally the only white person here <laughs> at all. And, you know, and it's like, it's, it's very fascinating. But then uh, when we lived in the Midwest, we lived in a, in an area of Wisconsin where there was this huge Hmong community because, you know, after the uh, Vietnam War, there were several places in the U.S. that were um, primary locations for immigration uh, to have happened. And Eau Claire, Wisconsin is one of them. And then the Twin Cities has it has a huge Hmong commu community community. And I what I thought was fascinating about this, and this kind of goes back to the women in ministry and patriarchy, is uh, is it, it's it seemed like and it sounded like in the Hmong community, um, it was it would be almost impossible for a female to be the pastor it just because it was such a patriarchal society. Yeah, like and it like so like there were churches that were totally egalitarian in their denomination, but they had to be patriarchal or mm. complementarian um, and just in function. And I think they were trying to like disciple people into the kingdom and then through that, they would give voice to women and hopefully, you know, over time, the next generation would have a different perspective, uh, maybe. And and I just remember reading about that and talking about that with some of my my friends um, who were in the Hmong community. Um, what what I think brings that what that brings up though is that how like any ethnic group, there's not one monolithic Asian perspective. Or, <laughs> I mean, there's how many Asian countries and ethnic groups. And um, I think that's that's kind of been probably part of the challenge a little bit too, because and I'd love to have your comment on this. It, it may seem like different um, Asian ethnic groups experience um, persecution or oppression or overlooking in different ways. Um, because it seems like if you're from certain countries in Asia, it's good. Like, oh, you're a, you're a dot, dot, dot. Um, and then other countries, it's almost like, oh, you know, like, you know, it's, it's frowned upon. Is that true? Or is that, um, have you seen that or experienced that or heard about that? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that vague sense of um, like an embedded affirmation of light colored skin is mm. there in many cultures, but um, in my Korean experience, my sister and I had really pale skin and growing up in Oregon where like getting to lay out in the sun was a premium. We thought that was just so sad. You know, we were like, Oh, we hate that. Like we, we don't, yeah, our, our skin is so pale, but then we went to Korea and uh, to visit relatives and literally the aunties, like random aunties that I didn't know would touch my skin in the elevator and go, Oh, it's so yeah. light, you know? And that was a good thing to them. Yeah. 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 So, yes. So I think, I don't know how I picked this up, but a sense of like maybe Southeast Asians, you know, Filipinos mm -hmm. with darker skin, that it wasn't as good of a thing or, you know, that, that hierarchy that comes with light yeah. skin, dark skin. I definitely sniffed that evil, that fallenness, even mm -hmm. with our 
my upbringing and in various oh. Asian cultures. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I like Japanese people. I've I've always kind of my observation, and maybe this is because of my own, but it seems like Japanese people are like okay, like they're in in the U.S. They're you know welcomed or they're you know I don't know. It it seems less um, pejorative, or you don't hear as I, at least I haven't, and maybe it's because of I I would, but I would feel like I would be really sensitive to that too because if I ever heard anybody use you know. Mm -hmm. Terms, I'd be like, "What? That's me, you know? Or that's my grandma? That's fine. That's my dad." Um, yeah. So, uh, so Southeast Asians, you've observed there's there's almost like a, an, uh, an embedded bias um, culturally. Can be. Gotcha. I, don't think I did have that. Mm. I wrote a blog post about how one time in high school in Oregon, my friends and I went to this dance in this other town, and and. At that time, I, the norm and what I was used to is me and mostly white people or almost completely white people. So we went to this dance and there was a grouping of Southeast Asian guys my age mm. and um, they, they had darker skin and they looked like maybe they were Cambodian or uh, Thai or I don't know, South, Southeast Asian. And mm -hmm asked me to dance and I remember being really self-conscious and uncomfortable and more mm. uncomfortable than if a white person had asked me to dance. Interesting. And wow. I don't know if that was like, I'm, I was just gotten used to being more comfortable being the only Asian or mm. I was just uncomfortable with the Southeast Asian looking people. Now, ironically, my son is Cambodian, Vietnamese and Lao, you know, mm. I just think he's like, the most handsome kid in the whole world. Mm -hmm. The thought that I was asked to dance by someone who looked like my son at my son's age now, and that I was looking down on him because mm. he had darker skin just makes me want to throw up. But somehow I had picked that up mm. or somehow it came together in my mind. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be associated with this guy. Mm. That's just that is interesting. Yeah, I, I think about that, too. So uh, this is what I think is interesting. So I, I know enough about history that Koreans and Japanese people oftentimes don't get along. Mm -hmm. And I also know that it's because the Japanese people were naughty, 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 evil, bad, bad, bad. OK, like, very well. aware. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, that's a part of Japanese. That's the yeah. I'm 75 percent white. Identify. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, uh, but it but it's fascinating how. My grandma going growing up, I would hear uh, from from my my grandma and uh, my grandpa at times like like negative stereotypes about Koreans. Mm. Uh, but yet my grandma, most of her friends were all Korean mm -hmm. and, and because she worked at duty free and in Alaska, um, it was mm. like 110 percent Asian people working at duty free. <laughs> and so it was very, uh, very interesting. Um, how I, I saw, because I remember like re trying to reconcile that, and I and I feel like maybe I still am trying to reconcile that or try to understand how, because I think this is probably indicative of a lot of people who hold to um, racist or ethnocentric perspectives or worldviews or frameworks, but aren't always racist in their act actions. I guess mm -hmm. is the best way to say it. Like how, well, we can generalize a whole entire people group, mm -hmm. but you're different. You know, like, like, I mean, cause I've heard it before about African-Americans, like, well, African-Americans are dot, 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 mm -hmm. but you're different. But I don't think <laughs> that way. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I think white. I mean, I, I've heard that too. Like when I used to, when I used to have a lot, I, a lot of my friends at a certain periods of my time were people of color, and it was always like, well, yeah, white people, blah blah blah. Well, you're different. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, I always like 25 percent Asian. That's what I always try to pull out. I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah, it's it's just interesting how how the complexity of, uh, and I think that's probably the the issue or the reason why conversations like this are so important is because when we really analyze, we have to be willing to look at ourselves too and realize that we have, um, we need to put all of our perspectives on the table. Yeah. And, and especially when we're following, well, even more so when we follow Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Because we, we need to get to the point where we, we don't have like no trespassing signs on different ideologies or different perspectives. We need to say, Jesus, you can, you, you have full range to critique my intended biases or unintended biases or perspectives on things. And I think when we do that humbly, we can actually um, find out that we, we, we hold things that we, we didn't know were prejudices or we were just ignorant uh, of that because like racism is interesting. Um, I've really been trying to figure this out because of my kids, um, like I still struggle with, with, I just, I have a hard time understanding how those views can still exist. I, I really do. I know they do. And I don't mean that in a naive, like, well, I've never had to deal with it. I've, I've seen it my whole life. Uh, but I just have a hard time in 2021 that we still have people treated terribly and evil because of the color of the skin. Like that's so hard for me to, to wrap my head around it, but it's interesting how many times, my kids hear things, you know, when they're six years old and they and my sons heard things from students at school that are racist. Mm-hmm. Where do they learn those things? Yeah. Yeah. It's Where so, do they learn those things? Well, the system. I mean, things yeah. are set up in such profound ways that it takes forever to come to see. And it's not yeah. just it's not just bias. It, you know, I mean, bias is everywhere you know definitely mm-hmm. i grew up with my in my korean culture having tons of bias as i was just talking about but i would say every country but especially this country there mm-hmm. are systems set up that mm-hmm. propagate those kind of things those attitudes and it is shocking when we see that even children pick them up mm-hmm. you know? and it is yeah when people say that i'm like where did you learn this how did you? And it may be parents or other relatives or adults, but also they, they pick it up within all the nuances of our systems. Yeah. Media. Kids are sponges, right? And I mean, they're soaking all these. That's helpful because I was thinking about parents. Like that's where I was going right. with that. Right. Fascinating that you would say, because obviously you see it on social media. Yeah. Did, but even uh, who works at McDonald's, who does this yeah. job? Who does yeah. the cleaning? Who does, you know, who are all the administrators? Who are the who speaks staff? at my church? You know, yeah, who speaks at my church? That kind of yeah. thing. You know, that model, the power of modeling. Hmm. Pick that up. Do you so you know with the Asian American cultures that you are um or if if assuming you're observing them a little bit, you know, because you're in the bay and you kind of have to, I would assume, because it's all, all around you, but do you feel like um because a lot of the Asian American or a lot of the Asian cultures are patriarchal, just like a lot of cultures all over the world are patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Been like that for a long time. Uh, 
do you see that unraveling a bit with the next generation? Um, you know, do you, cause like, like when you were growing up, it's fascinating. You're growing up, you just assumed, Oh, that must be the Korean thing. You, I'm not that I I'm not, that's not who I am. But um, do you see that becoming less and less of an influence uh, amongst Asian American, um, you know, followers of Jesus? Ah, good question. I'm not you, need to, you, need to, you need to speak about all Amer- Asian Americans right now. <laughs> I, I realize I just asked you a question that's almost impossible to uh, answer. Say about this. I think it is true that as like second generation Asian second generation immigrants are here, mm-hmm. they are more used to the individualistic egalitarian American norm. Mm. So uh, having men in all the leadership roles feels weirder to the second, third generation than the first generation. The other thing I want to say is that just because Asian American communities tend to be a little bit more patriarchal, it, it doesn't mean they're fully patriarchal. And what I mean by that is that just because the pastor is a man doesn't mean that church isn't really run by women. Yeah, because you know? some of them uh, are, are functionally matriarchal, even though isn't, you know, isn't that the case for like most complementary churches? Yes, I mean statistically, it's far more women. Yeah, so I mm. even in the church I grew up with, I saw women lead because the leading needed to be done. So mm. they're the ones who you know got the permits for the the thing at the county fair, and they you know they ran this and that and the other, and we had women doctors, you know, so. You all yeah, can wow. see those things being modeled as well. So mm. there's all there can be like a a thin veneer of patriarchy, but then there's all the rest of the stuff where we just need all hands on deck because we're surviving. Yeah, interesting, so. interesting. Yeah, uh, I did a I recorded a podcast with uh, Edgar King, who is a vineyard. Uh, so he's an African vineyard pastor in Kenya, um, mm. and we were talking about that uh, about how. He was he I was I was curious about like in the African context because it's very patriarchal. Um, you know, like when I've gone over there, uh, I've been I've been to Kenya probably seven, eight, nine times with that. And I remember I did a marriage conference one time and I was I was teaching what arguably would be a egalitarian perspective of marriage. Mm-hmm. And it was like people, all these Kenyans were just like, What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, but but it's interesting because even in the uh, the church culture there, even amongst people who would say women can do everything, it's still very patriarchal. And so that's that gender not I, I've talked about in multiple podcasts now that unraveling and trying to wrestle with all those cultural things that are embedded in society, it, it, like bringing those things into conversation with the kingdom. Um, so it's interesting because he was saying how I, I think we boiled it down to. Uh, colonialism is really the issue is like at the African church was not complementarian until mm. complementarian Baptists came and told them what they should be or missionaries. Yeah. yeah. And I'm no, yeah, I'm not trying to say Baptists are bad, mm-hmm. uh, but it was interesting. He's like, yeah, until we were told that we couldn't do that. Women had been very involved in the church that was here. Right. Cause that's the colonial way of doing things. The church is already there. We go there and we tell them, <laughs> That it's not the real church, and we, you know, mm-hmm. you need American buildings, and you mm-hmm. also need to wear suits and ties. Uh, it's crazy, 
But uh, so there's a um, an author, and I I will I'm pretty sure he's Korean. Soon is it Soon Chan Ra? I've never actually said his name, but you from is that, did I say it right? Yeah, yeah. So I love I love his work. Uh, he but he talks about the in the book the next evangelicalism. I was just thinking about that. He talks a lot about the challenges with second and third generation Asians. That's one of his case studies and how the identity um, it's finding your identity in a, in the Western culture is really challenging. And I think this is probably part of that conversation. Cause I've seen it with Latinos. Mm-hmm. Like it's interesting how if you, depending on what generation or what age you're talking to a lot of Latino friends of mine, like there's a fair amount of, of um, Mexicans, you know, they're Mexican uh, ethnically, their parents came, uh, immigrated to the U.S. and would not let them learn Spanish. Like they would, they're like, no, you can't, you need to become an American, don't learn Spanish. Um, And then it's like this, the third generation rediscovers in a sense, their cultural heritage um, to some, some degree. So they learn Spanish and they're kind of like, oh yeah, you know, Cinco de Mayo. And then, um, and then the, it's, it's like the fourth generation and these are just anecdotal, but my observation, the fourth generation is like, wait, not only do I need to learn my language and my, my heritage, but it's also, okay, we can celebrate my culture. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's not just Cinco de Mayo, it's going to be all these other, um, you know, uh, Mexican, just speaking about the Mexican culture, because I know there's a lot of different, uh, you know, Latinos and Hispanics, but uh, it's like they, it, it's really cool to see that development, but it's it's also interesting to understand how that develop ha- development happened. And I feel bad for that second generation who was kind of like told, don't be what you are. Well, it's because a huge part of immigrant culture is just surviving. Yeah. You know? It's, it's so sad, though. <laughs> it yeah. is. It is. But, you know, as a second gen, or they called me 1.5 because I was born in Korea and I grew up here. I feel like the gift I have is now that I'm older, I realize that people have had to do so much to survive. And when you go to Mm -hmm. a country and, you know, all your background, all the skills you have in your background, your education, it doesn't matter anymore. Mm. It's tremendous amount of creativity, ingenuity, uh, to survive. And yeah. that is something that my parents modeled for me. Mm. You know, my mom and dad, they stay up at night cleaning apartments for $10 an apartment, mm. you know, all that. And that is a gift. Mm. That is, yeah. that is, it's grit. As much of a gift as if my Korean were better, even. And they sent me to Korean school or whatever. Well, actually, I did go to Korean yeah. school. I hated it, but, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know. Funny. Well, I think that's a good, uh, it's a good counterpoint. Uh, just, uh, you know, the sort because that's the, exactly, I don't want to, I'm not trying to mean that I'm throwing shade on the second generation mm-hmm. from the first generation. I'm saying it's more so it's sad that our culture couldn't have back in the fifties or sixties or whatever. I don't even know what day mm-hmm. year it was, but mm-hmm. like we couldn't have been more, uh, more willing to see. And this, this is the, yeah. this is the whiteness Christian or not. It's not, it's tied to Christian nationalism, but it's like that whiteness thing. Um, you know, where we are really willing to celebrate certain cultures over others, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, in where I lived in the Midwest, a um, lot of Polish and Norwegians. So there's a lot of places having polkas. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, yeah, you should laugh. Uh-huh. Uh, you should laugh. Uh, awesome. No, it's not. It's not. There's nothing that should be celebrated about polka. I won't go on record. <laughs> You know, no, not real. It was like, well, this is really interesting. Like we in this culture, 
Um, now, partly it was because there's a lot of a lot of Norwegians and, and mm-hmm. Germans and Polish people in this environment. So, the, you know, they were they were able to. But I would also say, and I think you could make a pretty strong case for it, is that there's certain cultural heritage that in the U.S. are like, OK, to celebrate out in mainstream. It's like it's cool. And then there's other ones where it seems like, you know, let's just hey, hey, whoa, 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 you're in America. You need to leave that stuff behind and, you know, and I, I guess it's hard not to tie that to the color of skin, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like Europeans tend to be able to be sell because in our, in our country, and this goes to the bias issue, mainstream America tells a story where we're a melting pot in, in parentheses of Europeans, but yeah. We ha- we're not a melting pot of Europeans only. We we have all these other people, you know. I mean, like in our community, there's lots of Latinos. I mean, there there's that's a significant part of our community, and and um, it's just it's hard not to recognize that as part of that bias and that that the system is built up to celebrate certain cultures and to devalue and not celebrate other cultures, and that's too bad because. Um, in my experience, like all these cultures, I mean, as much as I'm throwing shade on polka dancing because it is so ridiculous, <laughs> it's actually really fun. And, you know, like going to it was like, this is amazing. Uh-huh. You feel like you can do that in front of people and be okay. Like, that's amazing. Good, good for you. <laughs> and the dress. Yeah, um, exactly. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I think how that's, uh, how that continues is because of poverty <laughs> you know i mean mm. there's definitely the class or socioeconomic element of that when most immigrants when they come over they don't have time to have be creating cultural centers and festivals yeah, yeah. like that they yeah. are surviving yeah that's so. good that's good that's good so okay let's let, tell me how do we how do we as a society actually we can't figure that out how do we as the church, I mean, I, I understand like one of the intended uh, or one of the things we can intentionally do in that case is to work towards serving those who are uh, in socially economic disparity or, you know, have have um, poverty or are food deprived, whatever, whatever it is. That's one thing the church absolutely can do. Are there other ways we can do uh, like the cultural center? You use that as an example. My, my favorite thing I've ever done in, in Africa Ever uh, like it to me it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen was um, at, it's at this vineyard conference. It's a four day long conference, uh, and I was telling Edgar this. I was like, "You guys need to do this every night. Like, don't sing American vineyard songs for me. Like, I don't. I we need to do something different." And one night they did Africa night, mm-hmm. and so they've got I don't know in Kenya there's I think there's uh, 42 different tribes with unique languages, unique cultures. So there there's all these different tribes doing worship songs and their dances. And it was so beautiful, like celebrating their cultures and seeing in the room, people were like, so this is what I loved about it. Every tribe was excited, not only about their own culture and being able to share it, they were celebrating all the other tribes, cultures and languages and dances too. Like it was, it was the kingdom on earth. It was one of the most beautiful things. So is is there a way for churches to be able to do something like that to become a cultural center, because back in the day, churches used to be Martin Luther nails the 95 theses on the door of the church. Why? Because that was Facebook. <laughs> that, was the, that was the way to get it out there. Yeah. What, what can we do today? And, and maybe um, 
like as we're dreaming here, do you see this as something you you might try to do down in the Bay Area in three years when COVID's gone or, you know, whatever it would be? You know, well, I have a theological answer and a practical answer. I think as a person of color who leads a church that was founded on primarily white culture, mm-hmm. we have to teach from the scripture dominant culture people or white people in my context, how letting go of being comfortable is so crucial in the kingdom of God mm. and letting go of things that you don't even realize. I guess the common language now is privilege, <laughs> you know, letting go of cultural pl- privilege yeah. is a mandate for mm. Christians who are trying to live out the kingdom, mm. Either, you know, at, because you're a missionary or because you're trying to receive and be as hospitable as possible to all types of people. Because unless you realize that, then there's just going to be all these different ways that celebrating different people's cultures isn't going to make sense. Mm. So, for example, in the early years when my husband and I were just members of our church, I noticed that all the potlucks, they like to have a theme to the potluck. <laughs> the theme all like European, you know? Yeah. So, um, hot dish. This, oh, yeah. this week we're having hot dish. Hater yeah, hot casseroles. Pasta, you know, so I think, but as a minority person, I wouldn't say let's do um, Korean stew because I'm not feeling safe. I'm not feeling uh, like the white people are going to understand or have a reason or rationale for welcoming that, Yeah, you know, because they're like, no, we're not doing our culture. We're just doing normal stuff. You know, they don't understand Mm. that. They've never had Colby ribs. Right, exactly. And it's so sad. Man, don't know. I know. Um, hey, uh, on a toll side, I know I, I want you to get to me. I got my grandma's Colby Ribs recipe from my mom recently. Wow. And we made, I was like, oh, so good. Wow, <laughs> so, that's great. so good. I know I, I didn't mess it up. I added the right <clears throat> amount of uh, of brown sugar. That's my, <laughs> that's the one. This is a lot of sugar. Okay, keep going. So, so you, you are like, you didn't feel safe or you wouldn't feel safe in that environment to celebrate your culture because it's almost like it's, it hasn't been uh, the awkwardness ha- stage has never been approached. Yeah. And it's, it needs to be a value first mm. before okay. really as a minority or like, you know, there's only a couple of us or something like that. No, that's not <laughs> about our church. Our church is like 40% Asian, but yeah. um, you know, in those early years, I wouldn't have shared my food. You know, if it was the chances were highly likely that people would be like, "Ooh, what's that? That smells really different, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. So I think we have to create a culture, a, a foundation of eagerness and gladness, you know, mm-hmm. in the dominant majority. So and I think we have to on a practical level, um, we just have to try and experiment. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, on well, when we were still meeting in person, we would have friendly fourths. So on fourth Sundays, everyone wore their name tag and then we had special snacks. And so we would just try like, okay, we're going to have Indian snacks today. We're going to have Korean snacks today. Or, you know, the Brits are going to bring like chocolate from England, which was so much better, you know? Yeah, and that sounds awesome. <laughs> things, you know, uh, yeah. um, that's a kingdom value because what you're doing is you're helping people 
to have a foundation of stretching. Mm. And that is so important. And it builds trust with those of us who are the minority. <clears throat> so that awkwardness, um, I, I want more comment on that because I'm thinking about how, so I, I uh, went to Nepal a couple of years ago and we were fortunate to stop in Hong Kong mm. and I had like a 24 hour time. And so me and my friend were like, we are going to literally just eat food for the next 24 hours. <laughs> and we, I mean, we did too. It was bad. It was bad. Hong, you know, COVID 20, mm-hmm. we did the Hong Kong 15 and then we did it like in 24 hours. But, uh, but I, I remember this one, one, uh, soup place. It was, you know, it was just all these different soup kitchens or soup restaurants or whatever. Uh, and the smell was out of this world different. And, you know, I would have said bad. I'd have been like, whoa, that was, that was like, whoa. Um, but, but then I, I ordered this soup. I was like, cause I have to try it. Like I just have to. So I ordered this soup and it did, it smelled like it smelled, it smelled very dirt, you know, uh, like dirty feet. <laughs> I was like, this is dirty feet soup, but it was awesome. Like the taste was phenomenal. And, and we ended up like sitting there and we ordered like two bowls of it. And we were just like, what is, what is this soup? So there was this awkward because like I was like uh, <clears throat> using the word weird to describe mm-hmm. the smell to the others. I was like, it was just weird. Like I don't even know how to um, how do how do like in that case is just a kind of the food thing. You talked about having to be uncomfortable and how how to be weird. Like how do you navigate those things when there's things that are so new to different? Because it's not just white folks. I mean, I think if you put Africans and Asians together, you know, because I mean, a lot of the African people I know, well, well, they'll joke around about how people think they all look the same. But then I'll be like, yeah, well, it's like black people saying that Asian people are all look the same. Like, it's kind of the same, same thing. Uh, How, how, like, you talk about the value in the kingdom where you're, 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 the value is to explore um, different cultures and to value different cultures and to be willing to have I don't know that awkward stage, you know, or have the uncomfortability. That's the, I, I guess, awkward and uncomfortable go, you know, those are kind of similar. What's that look like in the church? Like, how would you see that happening? Like lay it out for me. Like you're a church, you're going to start doing potlucks and you want to get to the point where you can get that Colby rib. Okay. But my goal is to get Colby ribs. And if you bring kimchi, even better. How, how do you get there? I think the secret is relationship. You know, authentic. That you can't go with that answer every time. It's too easy. Okay. True. You know, it's like your example of going to the soup place in Hong Kong. Yeah. I think that's great that you had the initiative and the adventure spirit to do that. But even better if there is someone from Hong Kong who was helping. Help you to navigate, to know that this kind of soup was beneath their mom, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you even stretch to try something um, that you normally wouldn't because this person's asking you to, you yeah, know. So gotcha. that's why it's great to have as much diversity in our churches as we can because it's really through relationship that you're more likely to say, mm-hmm. oh, I will try this or. Yeah. Whatever. So, you know, food. Well, that's, or- that's funny you mentioned that because the, the reason why we got this soup is because so this is uh, so and I remember this. We we found this guy who owned this. He he was out. I think he was um, eating or as, on, as lunch break 
you know, so he was eating a bowl of soup and we were clearly the two white guys, you know, in this mm-hmm. building. And we're just kind of like, I mean, it was just soup shops all around. We were like, where do we even go? And he started just talking to us, you know, like, where are you guys from? And, and uh, so he's the guy who's like, Hey, come have soup at my shop. And this is the one, you know? And uh, so it was, it was very relational. Cause I didn't know. I mean, there was literally 20, it was one of those squares, like a mall, you know, food court. And it was like, where do you even go? Yeah. Where do you even go? You know? So yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, I hadn't even thought about that. Cause we would have not picked that soup. <laughs> like yeah. that the last one. Mm-hmm. So that's good. So, but it ended up being like the, you know, like I said, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is the best soup. That's, that's amazing. Um, wow. Well, I, I think that, um, the whole idea of the, you know, racial awakening in America and, and also it seems to be happening a bit in the church, um, is really good and really exciting. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. It just seems like the more conversations like this and the more that we can get coaching from people like you um, and, and and not just like you, but yourself, it's going to be really helpful for the church. So what's uh, what's some ways that people can kind of stay up to date? I know you have a website, which if you're listening to this, it's in the description. Um, and if you're watching this, then you can see the link right there. But uh, tell me a little bit about what you what you write on and you blog about. <laughs> my blog is not about uh, church or racial things or uh, it's just one of my passions, which is mm-hmm. capturing my uh, stories about my son. My son mm-hmm. is, has autism and intellectual disability and a number of other things, and he is not able to tell his own stories. So when mm-hmm. I turned 40, <clears throat> I just decided, okay, what do I want my forties to be about? And I realized, well, I'm not sure, but one of my goals is to make <laughs> to make Joshua known, um, mm. also to make Jesus known, but to also to make Joshua known. Yeah, uh, so people would know who this amazing kid is. So I just decided to capture stories about life with Josh. Awesome. So, so people who want to, it does overlap with race some yeah. because I'm realizing many things as I raise a Southeast Asian child. Hmm. But um, also about just being a special needs parent and, yeah, having siblings, uh, typically developing t- siblings and, you know. Mm. Uh, I, I, um, I'd love to have you. So I was uh, before we went recorded, you know, today I'm also recording a podcast with a, uh, a scholar who specializes in the church and disabilities. And we've been. We've been working on this podcast for, well, it's A, we've actually spent more time preparing, as you know. It's like, hey, you want to be on a podcast? Cool. Let's talk about some things. Uh, but we've been we've been working on a, a variety of different things we want to address in the podcast. And I'm just going to ask her questions from a specialist perspective who is a New Testament scholar, but also very passionate within the, uh, she's Australian. And she's done a ton of work to try to help the Anglican churches in her uh, particular city and in her in her community become to be to become more inclusive to people with disabilities. Which my story, you know, my youngest sister has Down syndrome. It because I, I've had her in my life for the last twenty one years, twenty two years. I've uh, been been very um, aware of that being something that the church hasn't always been great at. Uh, mm-hmm. The church in general, mm-hmm. you know. And so I was wondering if uh, if you might be willing to, um, we record this podcast, we give you a copy of it, you check it out, and then we could have a follow-up. I'd love to have you un- unpack some of the things that we talk about and have you share 
in your experience, you know, because I know, again, Susan, like from the out from outside, we don't know each other really well, but I'm like a fan. I, I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm a Susan fanboy. Uh, <laughs> if that's a word that they're still using. Uh, but I, I just really appreciate your uh, your thinking. I mean, you're so thoughtful and, and measured and wise. And, and it seems like you've you've um, you've thought about a lot of the different subjects that we're talking about. And today, we just scratched the surface on these. I mean, I could, we could talk forever on some of these things. Um, but so I, I would love to have you be on another episode to kind of flesh out more of the thinking on the disabilities, yeah. um, you know, challenges for the church, because that seems to be a, a significant um, issue for us. And so I'm going to have you, I'm going to have you um, close with one final like thing. So the other day I was uh, in this, this Zoom meeting with a bunch of different pastors um, and my, my friend Brian Metzger, who's a vineyard pastor on the East Coast, w- put this thing together about the church of the future, like what's church going to look like? And it was interesting because there's a number of churches in this meeting who are in your same situation where there are no per- in-person meetings. They're in cities that are still highly susceptible, lockdown, you know, the whole nine yards. And then there were a couple of us who were like, yeah, we, you know, the, our numbers have been going down. We've been meeting in person. Uh, we've been trying to do that as safely as we can, you know. Um, but we were all kind of talking about what is 22, 2022 and twenty, the end of 2021 look like, you know. And we're all, we all see that there's been a massive failure of discipleship in the American church context. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody disagrees with that, <laughs> I hope. Um but one of the things that one of the pastors pointed out was how their church is um, next to a church that has intentionally um, said, hey, we can't keep up with the mega church down the road that has mm-hmm. you know a $50,000 budget just for their technology. Yeah. <laughs> and part of me was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. but, but what we can do is we can start to identify different people groups or different uh, issues that no one's addressing. And so they have, uh, because I think what it was is that one of the co-pastors um, has either a child who has a disability or is, works in a disability environment in their in their bivocational role. Uh, and so they were just talking about how their church has really taken that on. Like they want to be more intentional about that. And it made, it, I was really convicted about that because when we first moved to Red Bluff, uh, four and a half years ago now or so, um, that was because we had been a part of a church in Wisconsin that was very intentional about that. We had uh, a, a fair amount of people who had disabilities and several people who we had this married couple that had Down syndrome or have Down syndrome that were the cutest couple in the entire universe. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Um, and because of my sister and whatnot. But we we were pretty intentional. And here we started out five years ago wanting to do that but it just kind of hasn't been something that really has taken off and to my what i realize is that i i have not been as intentional here as i had in wisconsin because of a variety of different reasons mostly because i've been busy with all these different things but i do feel like the stirring of hey we need to do something so if you wouldn't mind like just for a few minutes here like let help us know like for those of us in the in the church who whether we're leading or we have some influence in, what can we do to begin to be more thoughtful about people who experience cognitive disabilities, um, physical disabilities, um, even mental and emotional? I mean, mental and emotional 
um, you know, is, uh, challenges are real and we've seen, you know, more focus on that in the last probably five years than ever before. Mm-hmm. What, what can we do to get in the game? And then maybe this can prep us for our next conversation where you can, if you'd be willing, unpack some other really helpful uh, things for us to do. I think that one low-hanging fruit in terms of mission or opportunities to serve for the church is the reality of super stressed out parents, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when the pandemic is over, if you can say it will be over, I don't know, when we come out the other side, um, we're going to have a lot of people with mental health issues. And we're also going to have parents who have just been hanging on by their fingernails for Mm -hmm. way too long. And that's especially true for parents of special needs kids, you know? I mean, not every church is gonna be able to have programs for those kids themselves. If you can, that's great, but that takes a lot of uh, volunteers and work and I mean, a program energy, but you could have a circle. We <laughs> have mm. a circle that we call um, extreme parenting. And it's just a support group for parents with I mean, a lot of kids have different special needs, could be as as overt as my son, Josh, or it could be kids with mental health issues or, you know, nutritional, I don't know, know every child has special needs in some way, but if they identify Mm -hmm. as special needs, then you can guarantee that those kids, those parents are extra, extra stressed, you know, and almost too busy and stressed to ask for help. So any ways that you can offer help practical help, but also circles of support and knowing for those parents, I think that would be awesome. And I mm. recently received that. And that is God's grace to me in such a profound way. Mm, so Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I know, you know, you have, uh, like every other pastor in America, I'm assuming you have a very stressful life and uh, are busy, but... Deeply, deeply honored to have you. Um, so uh, to everybody listening and watching, thank you for taking the time to do this and uh, to, you know, to listen to this conversation. Yeah, we really, really appreciate your time. Uh, check out Susan's website. It's There's a lot of great stuff uh, that she's doing. And also, uh, Susan, your, your uh, church, you have podcasts and videos and you're doing yeah. that. Like, how, how can they follow you? Because that's a great way to actually hear yeah. you. Yeah, we have a YouTube page, channel, and um, Palo Alto Vineyard Church. And, okay. Uh, our website. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot for, uh, for being a part of it. And all you listeners and viewers, thank you for your time, too. Uh, have a great day. And peace out. Woo!